0: But to get to Hosea 12, we're actually going to have to start in Hosea 14. To understand Hosea 12, we'll have to start in Hosea 14. So you may want to put your finger there and head to Hosea 14. Uh, For those of you who are uh, moms, got little children, I want to let you know an update. Um, We love you. We're glad you're here. Glad the kiddos are here. And we have this room in the back behind the sanctuary that many of you know about. You can go in if you want to uh, be with your child back there. I will say, I want to tell you this beforehand, uh, the sound system back there isn't um, working right now. We're working really hard to fix it. We got plans to fix it. We're going to fix it soon because we want to take care of you guys. We want you to hear the songs and the teaching and everything. I just want you to know, feel free uh, to stay, stay in. But if you do want to go back there, you can, and we're working on fixing that sound. I just want to let the moms know that because we've got lots of good moms, lots of babies, and we love them both so much. So we're working to serve you. Just throwing that out there. Um, Hosea 12 is important for all of us to hear. It's important for all of us to know because Hosea 12 teaches us some things uh, that will help us live better lives. See, when we enter Hosea 12, we're actually entering into the last part of the book, The book of Hosea is really broken down into two sections. You got 1 through 3, which is the story of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. And in verses, uh, in chapters rather, 1 through 3, what you have is basically a physical demonstration. Hosea the prophet plays out something really important to note, and that is the faithful love of God for unfaithful people. Hosea is a faithful husband. Gomer is an unfaithful wife. Hosea loves her anyway. Hosea is good to her anyway, Hosea redeems her anyway, and he plays out, he demonstrates what God does for us. Even when we're unfaithful, God loves us, God is good to us, God blesses us, God redeems us, praise be to God. That's Hosea 1 through 3. Hosea 4 through 14 is section number 2. Section number two is his prophecies. These are like little sermons or or excerpts of sermons that he gives over a 50-year time span, and they read sort of like a one-sided conversation, and it's God's side of the conversation with Israel. Hosea is prophesying. He is giving the word of the Lord, and we read that listed out for us in chapters 4 through 14. Okay, it's just just straight up, it's just, here's what God has to say to Israel. Now, within that section of chapters 4 through 14, it basically breaks down into two parts. That would be chapter 4 through 11, chapter 12 through 14. Basically, you've got two parts to those prophecies. Now, in both of those parts, you're going to see some of the same mega themes, okay? You're going to see some of the, me- the, the same our overarching points God is making. He is calling out sin. He is imploring them to repent. He is promising them a future restoration, a new covenant that will come and will save all who believe and all who call on the name of the Lord. Those are the big themes in both of those sections, 11, uh, 4 through 11, 12 through 14. However, there is sort of another theme that comes to the forefront in Hosea 12 through 14. Now, it's not necessarily absent in Hosea 4 through 11, but in 12 through 14, it just simply becomes more prominent, and that is the theme of wisdom. Hosea is striving to impart wisdom as he prophesies. In fact, we see this in Hosea 14 verse 9, which is the first verse I want us to look at this morning. Here's what the Bible says. Hosea fourteen nine it says, "'Who is wise?' and he shall understand these things. Prudent, which is another word for wise, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. But the, transgressor, the transgressors, those who are unwise, the foolish, shall fall therein. So Hosea 14.9 is an interesting verse, to be honest with you. Some scholars argue about how it got in there. Um, We know it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the whole word is infallible, inerrant, and perfect. But Hosea 14.9 sort of is like an editor's note, right? It's almost like the preface of a book, only it's at the end, perhaps written by Hosea. That's what I think. It could be that it was written by one of his disciples who collected his prophecies and delivered them to Judah, which we believed happened. It's like this guy collected the prophecies. He bound them in a book and he said, this will make you wise. And if you are a fool, right, this will make you fall. And in essence, what we see is particularly in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Hosea is imparting wisdom to the people. He's saying, hey, this is for those of you who will repent of foolishness and live wisely. Now, the whole book of Hosea, like we said, is really, it has some wisdom. But this section of scripture is a little different, 12 through 14, in that historically, what we gather from what's written in it, what we gather from the Hebrew, is that this was written after a certain defeat in Israel, a really bad defeat, okay? In 1 Kings, we read about a defeat that decimated northern Israel. Um, That defeat came from Assyria, and it looks like Hosea 12, 13, and 14 was written after that defeat but before their exile, which eventually came in about 732 B.C. Okay. So here's what this means for us as we read it. Here's what needs to be in the back of our heads as we go through it. Hosea 4 through 11 is written to Israel in a time of prosperity. So that's written to Israel as they're living the good life, as things are going well. And they think, I mean, they're on top of the world, and he's trying to tell them that's not going to last forever forever right? Hosea 12 through 14 is written in a time of pain. This is not going well. Things have gone bad. And one of the things Hosea is pointing out to the people is that wisdom is the only way out. Wisdom is the only way out. You see, here's the truth. Let me tell you this, right? Wisdom, right? Bible's full of wisdom. Bible preaches wisdom, teaches wisdom, gives us wisdom. Wisdom leads us to better living now make sure you hear what i just said it's important to note exactly what i said here's what i did not say wisdom leads you to a better life right? as in a problem free life right wisdom doesn't necessarily stop tornadoes and hurricanes it doesn't necessarily stop sickness and disease wisdom doesn't necessarily stop tragedy and catastrophe, we're not preaching that wisdom leads to a problem-free life. I mean, Jesus Christ was the wisest man, the God-man, to ever walk the earth, and yet He suffered greatly. His friends betrayed Him. His followers fleed from Him. His government executed Him. I mean, He, he was left all alone. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me in our place for our sins, shedding His blood for the 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 iniquity of the world things he never did taking responsibility falsely accused taking responsibility for crimes he never committed so that even the worst of us can walk free in this life and in the next life he suffered even in his wisdom he's the wisest person to ever live and yet he suffered so we're not saying that wisdom guarantees you a better life in that sense without suffering without these, outs, these external broken this external broken world that comes in that has a part to play in our life that hurts but what we are saying and what the scriptures are saying and what Hosea is saying i believe is that wisdom though it doesn't guarantee a better life it does guarantee better living so it doesn't necessarily guarantee less problems but it does guarantee more capability sustainability thus more peace and joy during the problems it's not necessarily leading us to a better life, but better living, and sometimes that could be the same thing to some degree. You have to remember that the gospel is not so heavenly, it is not so otherworldly, it is not so far above us that it doesn't affect us down here. Yes, the gospel saves the soul, the gospel ensures for us eternal life and a home in heaven, but it also affects the way we act on Tuesday morning, and when we clock in and clock out. It's not just so far above us that it has nothing to say and nothing to do with how we walk in this life. Hosea, in chapters 4 through 11, primarily calls them to give God their heart. He's calling them to worship. The gospel, the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves us even though we're sinful, that Jesus died in our place for our sins, that he rises from death, freeing us from Satan's sin, death and hell. The gospel does call us to worship God. But in Hosea 12 through 14, he's also calling them to the wisdom of God, to walk with God. And the gospel also calls us to wisdom and to walk with God in the ways that he set before us, right? So he's saying, hey, worship God, give God your heart. And he's also saying that as a result of that, you will walk with God and live in his wisdom. So let's ask this question for the rest of the sermon, okay, where do we find the wisdom of God? If we're called not just to worship God, but to walk in the wisdom of God, not just to worship God, but to walk with God and to walk wisely, then where does one find wisdom? This morning, across the world, lots and lots of people are looking for wisdom, and many are looking in the wrong place, or at least the wrong starting point. I mean, people are looking for wisdom right now, I mean, more than ever. They're looking for wisdom for everything from Twitter to the news, YouTube to university, and some of that's good, but some of that isn't. Some of that will have the truth, some of it won't. Some of it will have partial truth and partial falsehood. Where are we going to find real deal true wisdom? And I think that's part of the question Hosea is answering for the people of God in Hosea 12. He's saying, you need wisdom, here's where to find it. And I think he starts by saying that wisdom comes from warnings. And here we can turn back to Hosea 11 verse 12 where we actually start our text. Hosea 11, verse 12. Wisdom comes from warnings. I'll tell you, we need to be listening to warnings. Wisdom comes from warnings. Most of the time, we're not listening or we're hard of hearing. I'll tell you, I'll give you this illustration. I, uh, there's been several times, maybe not several, but a few, a few times in my life where I've been at like, a Walmart, okay. God bless America. Walmart, awesome. So I'm going into Walmart, right? And you know, you go into Walmart and you buy some stuff you need, but mostly stuff you would not only that you don't need, but that you would never need, right? You're like, well, these DVDs are five dollars. Let's get 15 of them. Those will never go out. It's never that's never going to be obsolete. Pull we'll them in, right? We get flip flops, Doritos, Diet Coke. I mean, you just go all out at Walmart. Roll back prices, okay? There's been a few times where I've been in a Walmart, this has happened to me, where all of a sudden, while I'm shopping along, the alarm goes off. Now, I don't know if it's a disaster alarm, fire alarm, I don't really stop to ask questions, but some alarm will be going off over the loudspeakers, you know, the lights will be flashing, these types of things. Now, here's the deal, you guys know me, I'm the guy who's worried about everything, right? Right? So when I hear an alarm, I'm like, we're all going to die. Let's head for the door. Maybe I'll make it. I'm calling Joanna. Hey, listen, if you get remarried, that's okay. You're still young. Right? Like, I, I'm, 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 I'm leaving the cart. I'm headed for the door. I'm, I'm confessing sin. I'm telling God I'll be a missionary. Just get me out of here, whatever it takes. Right? And as I'm running for the, I'm running for the door, I'm looking around, and everybody else at Walmart is standing still putting stuff in the cart, finding another DVD, another 24-pack. Like this alarm isn't even happening. They're just assuming it's a false alarm. They're assuming there is no problem. They just go on as normal. And here I am, oddly, the weird one, running out of the building because of an alarm. Now all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's doing something off so i go back to my cart and i'm like fine i'll die with you guys right whatever let's just see how this plays out i'm saved i'm all right and a lot of us we we're like this i'm like this in other parts of my life where we're not good with warnings we don't heed them and thus we suffer and that's kind of going on in the book of hosea they're not heeding the warning but they need to because from warnings come some wisdom look at hosea chapter 11 verse 12. This is technically where chapter 12 starts. The guys who put in the verses and the chapters did a great job. They did us a great service, but it's not like they always got it 100% right. Really, the next thought, the next section of Hosea's prophecies start here. This is probably better to be chapter 12, verse 1, but it is what it is. It says this in Hosea Eleven Twelve: Ephraim compasseth me about with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah, right, yet ruling with God God and is faithful with the saints. Okay, so here's what we got in this verse, pretty plain, but here's the idea. There's two sides to the kingdom at this point in history. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom because Israel split in half a couple of hundred years before this. The northern kingdom is typically called Ephraim because that's the largest tribe of the 10 tribes that make up the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom only has two tribes, they're called Judah because that's the more prominent tribe in the southern kingdom. In this verse, the northern kingdom has fallen into sin and they are reaping the consequences, right? They are liars. They are deceiving. They are sinful. And yet the southern kingdom, as of now, it says, Judah yet ruleth with God. The idea is as of right now, they're actually living right, right? They're, They're following the law. They are obedient to God. But what you'll find as we unroll chapter 12 is that though they're doing all the right things, their heart is actually going in the wrong direction. You see, before any of us fall, before any of us backslide, whatever you want to call it, there is this window of time. Sometimes it's a really short window. Sometimes it's a really long window where we're doing the right things even while we start heading the wrong direction. See, it's not always about all the tasks we're doing or not doing. Many times we really need to be more focused on our trajectory. Right? The, the, not just the laws we're obeying or not obeying, but the lane we're in. Not just the decrees we're submitting to you, but the direction that we're heading. I mean, this is very important. Think of an airplane. Like if an airplane takes off the runway and it's just like three degrees off in its trajectory, it's just like just a few degrees off in its direction. At first, it's not going to seem like anything bad is happening, but you give that thing a couple thousand miles and you're flying over the wrong part of the world. Our direction typically matters more than some of our day-to-day good and bad behavior. You could have someone who's currently doing something they ought not do all the time, but in their heart, they're repentant and heading towards God. They are getting better and better, though if you looked at them in this sliver of time, you'd say, that's messed up. There are certain people are doing all the right things but they're heading away from god and if you look at them in this sliver of time you say that's a faithful person right? we have to look broader than just works and into our ways what's going on here is that he starts with a good progress report but then he's going to head into a warning because they're heading the wrong way look at chapter 12 verse 1 chapter 12 verse 1 verse 2 as well it'll say this Ephraim feedeth on the wind Followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians. And oil is carried into Egypt. The Lord has a controversy with Judah or an indictment against Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings, he will recompense him. So chapter 11, verse 12, Judah gets this great report card. Chapter 12, verse 2, he gets this big warning. He's like, oh, we got beef, Judah. I got a controversy with you, Judah. What's going on here? Uh, That's a pretty pretty quick shift. This escalated quickly. And here's the idea. Technically, Judah at this point is under King Hezekiah. They're doing the right things in the temple and the sacrifices and the law and the priesthood. They're living right, but they're going the wrong direction. So they haven't done all the things that Israel's done, but their heart is getting to a place where if they were tempted or were offered, they would do it, though they haven't done it yet. Well, what did northern Israel do? Well, we see this in chapter 12, verse 1. We see that they made a covenant with Assyria. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to you in 2020. I know. We're not struggling with this, right? Nobody woke up today with great urges to make an unholy war alliance with some foreign nation. I understand. But you have to understand what the principle is behind this. Here's the idea. This was unwise. They then tried to get out of their unwise decision By making a covenant with Egypt. Again, I know, doesn't mean a lot to you. Like, what's what's it matter if they make a covenant with Egypt? Well, the idea is this was unwise. You see, making a covenant with Assyria, making a covenant with Egypt, both of these things, this idea of making an unholy alliance with an unholy nation, that was all warned against in the law. Books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy warned against making unholy alliances with nations that worshipped false gods. That was in there. You say, well, why, why was that forbidden? Was it because God was just no fun and wanted to kill the party? No, it was because it was foolish and destructive. You see, making a covenant with Assyria would have been like, I mean, this is like making a covenant with the cartel for a modern day example. You know, if the cartel calls you up and they say, hey, we need you to do something for us, we'll give you $10,000, whatever it is, and you say, okay, because you need $10,000, here's the thing they don't tell you. They're going to call you next week with something even more scary to do, something more difficult to do, something that you could get caught doing. And you say, no, I don't want to do this. I got my $10,000, I'm out. And then they'll say, you can't be out, because if you say no, right, we're going to harm your family. And so now you're in for life, just for, for one, one, one connection with these people, and you're, you're in until, and, until you're dead. This is the same thing with Assyria and what's going on there. Israel is, they got bad friends. And there comes a point where Israel is done playing the game, and Assyria saying, no way, we'll just come and attack you. So here is, here is what Israel does in, in chapter 12, verse 1. I mean, this is fascinating. So Israel goes to the rival gang, a gang called Egypt, and they make a covenant with Egypt. And they ask gang number two to free them from gang number one. All of this warned against in the scriptures. You say, well, what, what's, the, what's, what's unwise about that? Well, here's what's unwise about that, okay? Let's say gang number two actually beats gang number one. Right? That's, the, that's the best case scenario. You're still in covenant with a gang. <laughs> like, you didn't get any better off the first... From the first time. You didn't you didn't really gain any traction here. You're still in the same boat, and there's still gonna be an unholy alliance and unholy people who want you to do unholy things to keep this thing going, and you can't get out. And this is what they've done. They've made these covenants with the wrong nations, with the wrong people, they've taken on their gods, and they're gonna pay the price because that is foolishness, right? So Here's the the idea. This is the lesson we get from it. That at the bottom of God's warnings is always wisdom. If you dig down to the bottom of any of God's warnings, you're going to see that they are wiser than our own ideas. This is why the scriptures constantly tell us not to lean on our own understanding. When we lean on our own understanding, we act like Israel, and we try to get out of foolishness by more foolishness. We try to pay off our gambling debt by more gambling. You're just not that lucky. We try to cover up our lies with more lies. And here's the truth. Foolishness never gets us out of more foolishness. Sin never gets us out of sin. Only wisdom and obedience can do that. And so what we have here is Hosea trying to preach to them wisdom because though it's not going to guarantee them a better life, it will give them better living. I mean, look at the results of Israel's foolishness. Hosea 12.1 says, Ephraim feeds on the wind. Feeds on the wind. They follow after an east wind or a big storm. And it's kind of poetic here, but he's saying, look, these 10 tribes in the north, I know you think you want to be like them, but they're starving themselves to death. Can you eat the wind? Neither can foolishness, neither can sin satisfy you. Say they're walking into the eye of a storm, man. Don't be like them, because they're headed for destruction. Judah, you're on the same path. Repent, run, return. This is their warning. He's trying to warn them into wisdom so that they might live better and get better results. Now, spoiler alert, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find Judah doesn't take the warning that they too do the exact same thing that Israel, the north did. They make unholy alliances with unholy nations. They make covenants with people, with false gods. They do all that. And they get exiled into a place called Babylon. And Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den. And they have to eventually come back to the city and rebuild the whole thing. And they pay for all that they've done. They they reap all those consequences because they didn't listen to the warning. That's the end of their story. What's going to be the end of our story? Like, will we listen to the warnings? Will you listen to God's warnings? Like, I just ask you, is is God trying to warn you about anything this morning? Like, is there something that you could get? There's this sixth sense in you where you're getting warned by the Spirit has anyone been sent by God to kind of give you some advice to warn you about something? If not, let me ask you this: If He does warn you, will you listen? If there comes a warning, will you listen? Or will you be like, American shopper at Walmart, putting stuff in the cart, checking out? Boop Boop! As the alarm's raging? Is that you? We have to listen to the warnings of God because from the warnings, they come wisdom, comes wisdom. When someone credible, someone older, someone further down the road, some gospel preacher, some mentor, some parent, some friend warns you, listen, because from warnings come wisdom. And from wisdom, it doesn't necessarily come a better life, but better living. Wisdom comes from stories, stories of others. If you noted in verse 2, he calls Judah and Israel Jacob. Now, that's probably kind of weird if you don't know the Bible, right? Like, why is he calling a whole nation of people Jacob? Like, be like us calling all of America Bill, okay? It's like, what is that? Well, the idea is Jacob was their forefather, kind of like our, not exactly, by any means sort of like a George Washington type for our nation, that kind of a concept. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is eventually changed to Israel where they got the national name. So sometimes the nation is referred to as the guy, Jacob. It's like a nickname for them. Jacob was the one whose name was turned to Israel. He had 12 sons who were the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So sometimes the word Jacob is used as the word Israel, and Israel is referring back to the guy, Jacob. It's interchangeable. He calls him Jacob in verse 2, and in verse 3, he busts out the story of Jacob that they might learn some wisdom from it. Look at verses 3 through 6. Hosea 12, 3 says, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength, He had power with God, or he was wrestling with God. Yea, he had power over the angel, the angel of the Lord that was wrestling with him in the Old Testament story. And he prevailed, and he wept, and he made supplication. This means he begged God. And he found him at Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, like the very God that created heaven and earth, the Lord is his memorial, or his memorial name. We're talking about God the Father. Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and justice, and wait on God continually. So here, it may not seem like it at first to us, but really what's going on is Hosea is masterfully applying Jacob's life story, one man's life story, he's applying one man's story to a nation of people, imparting wisdom to millions from just the story of one life. In just a few sentences, he applies a situation... In the, man, in the life of one man, to the situation in the life of thousands of men. In verse three, he starts talking about Jacob's birth. You might remember Jacob's birth. He's born a twin. If you don't know, his brother's name is Esau. Esau literally means red because Esau had red hair, and he was had red hair everywhere. I mean, he was very hairy guy. That's what the Bible says. Kind of funny. Then Jacob means heel grabber because. They're twins coming out of the womb. Esau's coming out first. And this is back in the day where coming out first was a big deal. The firstborn got the blessing, the inheritance, the land, everything. Right? So you think being a middle child is hard now. Back then it was excruciating. Right? Like you don't even get to go to college. You don't get nothing. I mean, you just, you're, you're born second. Get out of here. That was the idea. So Jacob, the little baby, is coming out second. But when he comes out of the womb, he's got his hand on his brother's heel And it kind of looks like he's striving to be first. I mean, he's a newborn. He probably has no idea what's going on. But the idea is it looks like it's this picture that he is doing anything it takes to get ahead. And then that attitude actually marks Jacob's life from then on out. He's filled with this unholy ambition. So he's called Jacob the heel grabber, which means he'll do anything to get ahead, even lie or deceive or fight you. And it's funny that, he's the father of this nation because years later 100 700 plus years later they're dealing with unholy ambition doing anything to get ahead including making unholy alliances with assyria with the gang basically jacob was so ambitious that he tricked his brother into giving him the birthright for a bowl of stew anybody remember this story raise your hand if you remember this story right remember that he comes in he's starving right he's probably a teenage boy they're always starving he comes i'm starving and jacob says hey if you give me your birthright uh, you give me you give me those legal documents where your inheritance is coming from i'll give you a bowl of stew i don't know how what was in that stew that must have been i hope that was great because esau hands it over then later jacob this great deceiver He knows that Isaac, who's basically blind, is going to have Esau come in. He's going to give him the blessing of the firstborn. And so Jacob puts on Esau's clothes. He puts animal skin over his arms so that he actually is hairy like Esau. And he comes and he bends down before Isaac. He smells like Esau. He feels like Esau. So Isaac thinks it's Esau, and he blesses Jacob instead of Esau. I mean, the drama. The drama. Right, these people should be on a daytime talk show. I mean, they just, this is a, I mean, you think your family's dysfunctional. Join the club with Jacob and Esau. They're the leaders. And he, he gets the blessing, and Esau at this point just wants to kill him. Sibling rivalry to the max. Jacob flees from Esau. Later, he has to come back home. He knows he's going to face Esau, who wants to kill him. And he's laying down. He's got a rock for a pillow by a river the day before he's going to meet Esau again after years of sibling rivalry. And God sends an angel to Jacob, and Jacob starts wrestling with him. Now, this is, I mean, this is the opposite of Mitch Miller. I'll just tell you that. I'd be like, that's a divine being. I'm going to go ahead and go. Like, that's terrifying. Jacob wrestles with this dude. He goes all 15 rounds with him All night. And at the end of the night, day breaks, and the angel says it's over. So he touches the hip socket of Jacob, and he gets it out of joint. And the angel's literally like, dude, let me go. That's in the original Hebrew. Dude, let me go. And Jacob's like, I won't let go unless you bless me. Unless you bless me. And in this moment, there's this great shift in Jacob that he doesn't want just a blessing he could deceive his way into. He doesn't want a blessing he can work for. He wants a blessing that comes from God. And he gets it. His name is changed to Israel. And he receives the covenant. The one Abraham had, the one Isaac had, now goes to Jacob, even though he's not firstborn. He's secondborn. He gets the blessing of God. And what, why is his story being used to, to apply to all of Israel? The idea is right now, you're like Jacob in the early days. You're trying to deceive your way into the front. You need to be like Jacob in the latter days. You need to be broken and cry out to God. This one man story is applied to a thousand men in Israel. It says, you're being like Jacob, your father in his early days. Look at verse 7. They're trying to do anything to get ahead, even even lie and cheat. Verse 7 says, he, that's Israel, is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. The idea is he knows the poor aren't going to be able to figure out that he's rigged the scales in the marketplace and is overcharging them for goods. Thus, they're getting rich off of cheating people who don't know any better. That's called injustice. That's called oppression. That's called sin. And verse 8 says they're bragging about it. He says, Ephraim said, yet I've become rich, I've found me substance, and in all my labors they shall find no iniquity in me that is sin. In other words, not that I don't have any sin, but nobody can prove I'm even doing this. I can't even get caught. I'm getting away with it. This is how foolish foolishness can get, is you can literally believe that you are hiding from God. Like, how, I mean, that's laughable. They don't think anybody's going to catch them, like, they, they can't be caught, how can you prove I'm rigging the system? How can you prove I'm oppressing the poor? You can't. And what Hosea is saying is, look, Jacob Jacob, was found out. You could be found out too. And you need to be found out. You need to be broken and you need to be like Jacob later, not a deceiver with unholy ambition. You need to be humble. You need to be prayer filled. Jacob ends up becoming humble. Look at Hosea twelve twelve. Hosea 12.12 also refers to Jacob. He said he fled into the country of Aram or Syria. And And he, Jacob, Israel, served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. He took on this lowly job of a shepherd. Though he had the blessing of this firstborn from a rich father. He humbled himself. Worked for a guy for 14 years for his wife, and he was a nobody, and he was low and humble, and he was he was average, and he didn't think too highly of himself. You guys need to do the same thing. He says, you need to be prayerful. Hosea 12.4, back up at the top of the story, it says he you know was wrestling with the angel, and he wept, and he made supplication, which means to beg God for the blessing. He begged God. He prayed. He got desperate for God's blessing rather than for a blessing he could deceive his way into or create on his own. And what Hosea is saying is you guys need to learn from his story and you need to wrestle with God. You need to submit to God. You need to weep before God and you need to beg God to bless you. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and justice. Wait on thy God continually. They're so desperate to get bigger and badder and richer and wealthier and more popular, but they're not desperate for God. They need to change, to repent, and wisdom would tell them, hey, be desperate for God. What are you desperate for this morning? Whatever it is, it probably makes sense to you. And it probably doesn't make sense to follow the instruction of giving it up to be desperate for God. I mean, it didn't make any human sense for them to follow verse six and, to, and, 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 to, and to, to do justice because if they do justice and they correct the scales of the marketplace, they're actually gonna lose money if they obey. But here's what wisdom says, Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. See, here's the truth. After Jacob got close with God, after he wrestled with God, after he begged God for the blessing, he limped. He limped for the rest of his life, but he limped with God. You get close to God, something will be lost, but you'll be with God. Amen? You get close with God. You obey God. Something will be repented of. But you gain God. He loses his physical, but he limps for the rest of his life. But he walks with God. And it is better to limp with God than run a marathon with the devil. It is better to limp with wisdom than to go across the country with foolishness. Because though wisdom doesn't necessarily guarantee you a better life, it does guarantee us better living which is sometimes the same thing. See, this unjust balance, this injustice is going to come back to haunt them even though they think they're getting away with it and nobody can prove it. In fact, that's verse number nine. Look at verse number nine, Hosea twelve nine. He says, and I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will make you to dwell in tabernacles in tents as in the days of the solemn feast. Now, here's what this means. Once a year, there was a feast in Israel. And then that week, they all lived in tents for a week. Okay? God's saying, listen, you think you're not going to get caught? I'll make you live in tents all year round. Literally, he's threatening them with going camping, which is why I stand by my position on camping, and that it's best done in a hotel with Wi-Fi. He's like, look, I'll make you live in tents. I'll take you out of your home. I'll take you into exile. I can take all this away. But i won't if you repent and turn to wisdom wisdom that's what they need and one of the places we find wisdom is the stories of other believers for them it's jacob who is it for us i don't know when you get into Griggs groups and you start sharing your stories you're actually imparting wisdom When you need direction and you go to a brother or sister in Christ and hear what they might have to say, they're imparting to you wisdom. In fact, that's one of the first places we should go to find God is the people of God. The Bible tells us that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells all those who believe. So where's the Holy Spirit? He's in Christians. So if you want to get to God, sometimes the fastest way to get there is to get to a Christian where the Holy Spirit dwells. And here's something very encouraging to me. There is nothing new under the sun. That's what the scriptures say. Nothing new under the sun. Here's what this means. Wherever you're at in life, whatever you are facing, someone else has faced it. Even your situation. Whatever you're facing, someone else has faced it and you need their story because in that story is wisdom. We get wisdom from the stories of one another. And wisdom doesn't necessarily... Lead us to a better life, but it does lead us to better living. We'll make this last point. Where do we get wisdom from? The Word. We get wisdom from the Word. You knew it was coming. So here's it right here in the Bible, verse 10. Look at Hosea 12, verse 10. It says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and I have used similitudes like poetry by the ministry of the prophets. He says, I gave you the Word. And for God, that's a lot. God puts a lot of stock in you having a Bible. Like there's very little excuse for those of us who have that. In fact, if you remember in Luke 16, there's a story of a guy, rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus uh, dies, goes to heaven. Rich man dies and is uh, in judgment, in hell. And he says, if you send Lazarus back from the dead, my brothers will repent and believe. And then what does Abraham say? Abraham's up there in heaven looking down. He says, no, your brothers won't believe if they don't believe Moses and the prophets. They don't believe the word. They won't believe even if one rose from the dead because eventually one did rise from the dead and still not everybody believes. It's a lot to have the word. He says, I gave you the prophets. And in the Old Testament, this was the word of God. I gave you the word. And then he says, but you didn't listen. Verse 11, he says, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely there is vanity. They're sacrificing bulls and Gilgal. Altars like heaps of ruins. Here's the big idea with verse 11. It's this, poetic saying, it's this poetic way to say the whole country's in idolatry. So Gilgal's on the east, the other one's on the west, everything in between. They're not listening to the word. And that's why they're not walking in wisdom. So then he mentions Jacob again. Remember in verse 12, he says, Jacob fled to the country of Syria Or Aram, and if he served for a wife. Kind of seems like an out-of-place verse for us right there, but the idea is he humbled himself. They need to humble themselves. And what does that look like? What what, What will humbling themselves mean? It means that they need to let the Lord deliver them through his word. They need to obey the word. Verse 13, he says, By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel... This is amazing, by the way. Like, I want us to get this verse. This verse is like this is this is so good this is so shocking this is so powerful this concept is so amazing i want us to get this hosea 12:13 he says by a prophet the lord brought israel out of egypt and by a prophet israel was preserved okay so how so the prophet is the symbol of the word of god he's the word of god at that time so for us the it's the scriptures that we're holding in our hands or in our phones Okay, how wise, here's the question, how wise is the Word of God? How wise is the Word of God? Well, it got a nation, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt, out of physical slavery. Israel was in, they were in slavery. Who on earth can get them out? Like what self-help book will tell them, "Hey, challenge Pharaoh, go across the sea to dry land." Right? Like what what TV psychologist is going to be like, "You know what? Don't worry about the plagues, they're not going to affect you." Like really, Oprah and Dr. Phil are not going to be like, "You know what? You need blood on the doorpost. That'll work." Who who has this wisdom? It's only the word. How wise is the word of God? Well, here's the deal. The Old Testament exodus is actually a picture of our New Testament salvation, right? So they're coming out of physical slavery through Jesus' blood shed over us. We come out of slavery to sin. So here's the idea. The the word of God is so wise, it can save a soul. No one else, nothing else can save the soul. The word of God alone has this, this power, this wisdom. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, no one else, nothing else is as wise as the word of God. It's the word of God where we find out that God loves us enough to send his son to shed his blood so that we could be atoned for it, so that we could be forgiven. And saves the soul. And so our question is the question they had, will they listen to the word? For them, the question was, will you listen to the prophets? For us, what's the question? For us, the question is, will we listen to Jesus I'll prove that to you look back down Hosea 12 10 and 13 let's read those two 10 he says I've spoken by the prophets 13 says by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt so the Old Testament they're supposed to listen to the prophets that's listening to the word Okay, what about New Testament? Okay, not that we don't love Old Testament. We're pro-Old Testament. We learn from the Old Testament. Old Testament's just as inspired as the New. We need it just as much, but we are in a different time period. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, So the idea now that we love the prophets, we read the prophets, we understand now the prophets were just pointing to somebody and that somebody has come and his name is Jesus and he is in and of himself, the word, the Logos, the word of God. And thus the wisest thing that we can ever do is to believe in Jesus, obey Jesus and follow Jesus. Following Jesus may not get you a better life, but it will definitely lead to better living. Nobody more wise than Jesus. Nobody defeated the temptation of the, the devil through the quoting of Scripture like Jesus. Jesus was able to go from a carpenter's son to the king of the world. Jesus, I mean, he, the Pharisees could never trip him up. In fact, he would always trip them up. And these were like the guys who would win on Jeopardy. I mean, he was just filled with wisdom. Jesus is so wise wise that many people today quote him even though they don't believe in him. They quote him and they don't even know it. Like when people get up and they don't even believe in Jesus, but they wax eloquent, a lot of times they're eloquent because they're quoting Jesus. They don't even realize it. Like, have you ever heard someone say the phrase, let's go the extra mile, or go the extra mile? That's wise. And it comes from Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if someone asks you to go a mile, go with them too. And... There's wisdom in that. Apply that verse to your marriage. Apply that verse to your relationship with your boss. Apply that verse to church. Apply that verse to your friendships and see if it doesn't lead to some better living. Jesus was the one who gave us all these famous quotes, like at Christmas time. Christmas time, we're watching all the great Christmas movies. My favorite is It's a Wonderful Life. I love that movie, right? Every time a bell rings, Angel gets its wings. That's not in the Bible, but it's in the movie, and the movie's good. We watch it, and we we say at Christmas time, it is better to give than to receive. And a lot of people think Hallmark came up with that. Look, Hallmark can't even come up with more than one plot for a year of movies, right? They did not come up. Who was quoted that in Acts? It says Jesus is the one who said it is better to give than receive. You. Lately, we've been fighting for this, and this is a good fight to fight. All men are created equal. You know who came up with this? The one who created man. Jesus. It was his wisdom. He's the one who brought this up. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Even if they're your enemy, pray for them, bless them. Jesus was so into this idea of equality. Here's what Jesus said. He said, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And if that's our policy, everybody will be loved. Nobody's more wise than Jesus. No one more filled with wisdom than Jesus. That's what do we need. We need to follow Jesus. He is the Word. We need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Repent and trust Him for our forgiveness, except that He shed His precious blood in our place, totally giving us grace, He rose again that we might rise again, and he offers us better living until we get there. Because he offers us to come, pick up our cross, deny ourselves, follow him. And we must. This is the word of the Lord. So let's end with this application. What do we do? Church, we need to become not just a worship center, but a wisdom center. We want a place of worship, we want a place of wisdom. We want to be a people who, who glorify Jesus and who learn how to follow Jesus. We want people to learn how to live for Jesus. And we want to teach one another, learn from one another how to live a godly life. This is actually part of the vision. We, I mean, COVID has sort of messed up some of our plans for 2020. Okay, but we still got plans. We got ideas to do classes on parenting in the fall and uh, marriage and finance and all these things, right? Because the gospel plays into all that. It gives us wisdom. As Christians, we need to learn from the warnings of the Word, the stories of the Word, and the God of the Word, Jesus. Part of following Christ, right, is being in the Word because our Christ quoted the Old Testament 78 times, 26 in the Pentateuch alone. He quoted from... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Malachi, and he even quoted from this book, Hosea. He, when, he, when he would refer to the scriptures, he would call them the Word of God, and then sometimes, literally, he calls them the wisdom of God. And so as Christians, we're in the Word. We follow Jesus. If you're a non-Christian and you're not walking with Jesus... You're not walking in wisdom. And you can have better. Come to the God only wise. Come to the God who saves. Come to the God who helps us, who hears us, who answers us, who grows us. Come to Jesus, the wisest one to ever live. Repent of sin, believe in faith, and let him teach you how to walk in wisdom. I'm not saying you're going to get a better life, but I am saying you will get better living and sometimes... That's the same thing. I'll leave us with this verse. Proverbs 4, 7. I think it encapsulates, it summarizes what Hosea is doing in Hosea 12. This last verse. Proverbs 4, 7 says this. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Let's pray and sing. Jesus, we pray for wisdom. Thank you, Jesus, that you... Took it all on the cross. We 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 lift up the wisdom of God. We acknowledge the wisdom of God, the one who could be just and the justifier of those who believe. The one who could take the penalty for sin while giving mercy to sinners. The one who could execute justice while also keeping himself righteous and making many righteous who believe. I pray if anyone here is a non-Christian, then when you become a Christian, they do so today that they would bow to Jesus, confess their foolishness, ask for his wisdom. Lord, thank you thank you that that's even an option it is all about jesus it's always about jesus i pray that everyone in here would leave with their life being made all about jesus we pray for those who are believers lord that we would would hear the warnings that we would live wisely as a good testimony to you and for our joy for your glory and our good i pray that you would help us to teach one another and that our church would be a place of wisdom. I pray that the neighborhood would look at our church and think there's something different. Something's going better. Something is, is unique about this church, this place, because it's a place of great wisdom. And I pray that we'd be a people of great wisdom. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.